Kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real 536, podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, we have a returning guest from eons ago. It's been quite literally years since he last appeared on the podcast, but we have a man who wears many hats, Jay Blake Vachera. He's the host of the Score to Death podcast, co-host of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. He's a film and television editor. He's a musician. And he's back to talk about his new book, Score to Death Part Two, the sequel to his 2016 book, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the reason you first came on Wrong Real was to promote your book back then. But at any rate, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And I do think my first appearance on Wrong Real was to talk about the original Score to Death book. But catches up, man. I mean, like I said, it's been quite literally, I would have to check the, uh, you know, the old, the old backlog to figure out when was your last appearance. But at a minimum, I think it's been like two years. So bring people up to speed. Maybe just talk big picture. You wrote a very moving chapter at the beginning of the book about why you chose to return to this world and compile another book. So let's just start there. You're watching John Carpenter rock out. He's one of your heroes. If people have not heard it, we did an episode about John Carpenter years ago, which was one of the most popular episodes of Wrong Real at that time. And you suddenly get this inspiration. What compelled you to dive back into this world? Well, I wrote that that chapter, the, the preface of the new book uh, details me seeing John Carpenter live for the first time. And that being a very big, if not the biggest influence on why inspiration as to why I wanted to do a second one. But the reason, the other reason why I kind of started the book that way is because the first book starts with a very similar story, which is me uh, seeing Goblin live for the first time. And that being a huge uh, inspiration for me to do the first book. And uh, when I finished the first book, which it came out in uh, summer of 2016, which literally was like a week or two before I saw John Carpenter live. And the and seeing John Carpenter live kind of was this weird culmination of a lot of things. It was like a crossroads for me. It, was, it really was, and I detail this in the preface, like the closing of one chapter and kind of the beginning of another of my life. Because when I fell in love with John Carpenter's music in the 90s, I never in a million years would have imagined that I would... 20 years later, uh, do write a book or, of, or put out a book of interviews where I get to interview John Carpenter. And 
even in my f- initial interview with John Carpenter in the first book, he doesn't, he has no, he, at that time he had no plans to put out any music that wasn't soundtrack related or core anything. Yeah. And then the floodgates opened and he started releasing <laughs> a lot of music. And then like six months later, after I interviewed him, there was this announcement that he had an album coming out. And so I interviewed him again to kind of talk about that. And even then I asked him about touring and he's like, yeah, that would be, it would be really expensive. And I don't know. And so the book comes out and then like, you know, a week later I'm seeing the guy play live, which was something I never, and I'm sure many John Carpenter fans never in a million years would they would have imagined that that would have happened. And it, I just, I found the experience extremely moving. Uh, it was moving because of my love for Carpenter. It was moving because I just finished what was probably at that point, the most important, uh, creative endeavor I had ever, you know, it, putting out a book was a big deal for me. I mean, I'd never really, I had started a, min, a million video projects of my own and none of them came to fruition. And I ended up doing this book out of just sheer passion for music. And uh, I managed to get a, a, a publisher and it came out. And then while that's happening, while I'm doing, making that book, the soundtrack world uh, for re-releasing soundtracks is exploding and bands like Goblin are continuing to tour. Fabio Fritzi is touring. Uh, Alan Howarth is touring. I'm said Hans Zimmer toured. <laughs> like all this stuff was all happening You're while like, I was doing shit, the book. I'll take a year early of the book or <laughs> I'm part of this zeitgeist. That's uh, you know, this like watershed moment. But then that move, that the book comes out, then John Carpenter's on tour. And I saw that and it just, now was that mostly stuff from like Lost Themes and Lost Themes Two? Is it like a mix of like soundtrack and new stuff, or what was? Well, when he tours now, because like if you go see the Stones, you're like, all right, I'm gonna get get to see Hot Rocks for the fiftieth time. But how does John Carpenter tackle his uh, his catalog? Well, that he's now toured twice and two 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 different tours, and that first tour was a healthy dose of Lost Themes One and Two, and also some of his greatest film themes it was a good combination and i actually loved the lost theme stuff hell yeah I, i'm a big fan and because it's a wrong reel i'm always saying uh, inappropriate things i've put it to the test if you're in the if you're so if, i guess if you're so fortunate to be enjoying the physical act of love put on lost themes <laughs> it works <laughs> and uh and it was i mean that stuff plays great live because it wasn't meant to be background music for anything you know so oh, that, fucking to me, that I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of both yeah so it was it was just amazing it was like i'm getting to see this thing i never thought i'd ever see it was so closely tied to the book that came out that i just put out and i was very proud of it and it just was really moving and i kind of decided that i didn't want to stop the journey of interviewing composers. Like I felt like there was just more for me to do and I wanted to continue to do it. Uh, the journey to the, to the, then the fruition of the second book is a bit weird and convoluted in that initially my publisher said, well, let's wait a year before we do another one to see if the first one sells. So I waited a year and uh, finally I get the word back. That's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do a second one. So then I was like, okay, you know, I do podcasting. I guest on a lot of podcasts. I do my own podcast. Maybe I could continue this journey as a podcast. So I started doing Score to Death, the podcast. Uh, 
which was kind of an audio continuation of what I was doing with the yeah, first. You got book. like Bill Conti and all kinds of incredible guests. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing to to continue doing that, and then through circumstances that I'm, I'm not sure are worth going into, uh, combination of doing the podcast led to talking to other publishers and lo and behold, coming back around, yada, yada, yada. I get the green light to do a, uh, a second score to death book for the original publisher. And the reason why I probably haven't been on in two years is because when I started doing that, when I started fish officially working on the second book, I had to make a conscious decision of like, where, what are my priorities? Yeah. Don't use priori- hours in the day, and how does one choose to spend one's time? So I stopped doing Score to Death, the podcast, and Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast, and working on the book became the priority. And so I stopped doing a lot of appearances on other podcasts and, and things like that. And so I, I just uh, dove headfirst into the new book, and uh, because that kind of came out of the podcast, what the new book ends up being is about... Uh, you know, in terms of number of interviews, probably about half the interviews in it originated from the podcast, which are transcriptions cleaned up a little bit. Uh, almost all of which, all of except for one, has new material in it that I did specifically for the book, follow-ups, uh, updates, and things from the podcast. And uh, the rest of the interviews were all uh, new and exclusive to the new book. Well, it's a giant doorstopper of a book, and it looks gorgeous. <laughs> but it's a whopper. You could bludgeon somebody to death with this. I mean, it's going to yeah. be an incredible resource it's for people so, interested in the topic. When it, when it arrived, my copies arrived. I picked it up, and I compared it to the the first book, and it's so much longer than the yeah, first yeah, book. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's a whopper. Well, in that your book does have so many technical questions. Let me ask you a technical question. As somebody who's got a podcast, two podcasts, and you're well-versed with that, and obviously as an editor, how do you, as someone who would, like, embarking upon a creative endeavor, decide what's, what's an interview for a podcast where you can like play music and bring in other things, and what makes a conversation better for a book? Because obviously today, whether it's YouTube, podcast, whatever, that space is expanding, and the world of publishing is, you could make a case for it, contracting. I think it's contracted like 5 or 10% over the sure. last decade. What kind of internal debate did you have over what goes in a book and what goes on your show? Well, for me personally, it didn't, uh, there really wasn't any kind of struggle in thinking about that. It was like the original podcast start, the podcast started because I couldn't do it as a book. And then when the book came along, the reason why I wanted to put some of those interviews into the book was one, because I thought they were good. Two, I thought they played really well against the other interviews I was doing. Um, and three, they were done already, kind of. <laughs> It was a way of uh, letting these kind of live on in a different in a, a form that I think I don't know I don't necessarily think of it as a more uh, classy or important form of prestige media. format. Yeah, like I I don't necessarily think of it that way, but the, a lot of the composers who were kind of older and more old school do. Gotcha. Um, and. How I chose who was going to be in the new book, which goes into, which is also a part of how I chose what interviews from the podcast would go in, because not every interview from the podcast is is uh, featured in the book. Kind of is also linked to the way I chose the first book, which is the the first uh, the, the first qualifications to be considered were like who do I want to talk to, uh, 
you know, what music do I love? And creating a diverse group of composers in the book, whether it's uh, age, whether it's musical style, whether it's type of films. Or nationality. Yeah, nationality. All those things were a factor. And so uh, how that, how this lineup for Score to Death 2 came about was really that. And the added factor was what can I feature in this book that wasn't featured in the first book? Like, how can I make this one different? And so part of that came in the form of featuring more contemporary composers. A few of the composers who either had just put out their first film while I was doing the first book or rose to kind of fame in the film music business in between the two. Yeah. Like disaster piece. And back in 2016, nobody really knew who he was, but now it's like, Oh, he's writing for some really cool flicks. When I saw, I was literally in like the last leg of finishing up Score to Death 2, or I mean the, the first Score to Death book. And uh, at the very least, I kind of had my lineup all set. And then I saw It Follows. And I really did, like I did go home and I, I looked them up and I said, like, who did this score? Because I was like, should I have them be, a, should I ask them to be a part of the first book? Uh, because that score just stuck out to me as something important (laughs) in the field that I was doing. And ultimately I decided to not reach out because it just was not a logical decision to make for the first book. So when I got the opportunity to do a second book, he was one of the first person people that I uh, reached out to. Excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about the forward by horror maestro Eli Roth. And he, I mean, I'm 44 years old. I've been watching horror my entire life and, I guess it's easy to get kind of blasé or complacent about the way you think about horror or the way that you digest it. But he brought up a really interesting point that I never thought about before. He said, as horror filmmakers, the goal is to make something so scary that they actually don't see all the hard work that you're doing. And I was like, whoa, that actually makes sense. Like the goal is to have them only seeing their fingers. But if you succeed at that, if they're covering their eyes with their fingers, they're still going to hear the score, making the score arguably the single most important ingredient to a scary movie because there's no escaping it unless you flee from the theater or turn yeah. off the DVD. But now that you've spent so many years thinking about horror scores, interviewing all these composers, do you find yourself having like new revelations where you approach the whole idea of horror music from a completely new perspective? Um, that's a good question. Uh, 
I think for me, the revelations that come now are uh, the way the composers look at it or how they how they approach it. Um, you know, I did I interviewed 14 composers for the first book. Uh, I interviewed a, a bunch of composers for the podcast. So by the, now I, I'm in somewhere in the ballpark of 40 interviews with composers, give or take. I, I don't know how many there are exactly. Uh, so after the first round of 14, I feel like I had a pretty good grasp uh, where I, like, I'm not really surprised about that kind of stuff. But sometimes a composer will say something about the process that's like, oh, that's interesting and I never thought of it that way. You know, trying to talk to composers about how they approach things and, and me not being not being a composer uh, and trying to serve an audience of readers that probably the most, most of which are not composers, trying to get information that makes sense or uh, is completely, you know, uh, for the layman is it's not hard, but that's kind of the goal. And like Bear McCreary, for instance, in his interview, I was trying to say like, well, how do you know for this score you want to do this with an instrument? Or like you want this lineup? And he said, uh, the film kind of tells you <laughs> what it needs. And that makes, it makes sense, but it's something you don't often think about. When I did the podcast, uh, I was talking to Bill Conti, who did the Rocky scores, and you and I did a Rocky episode for our Hungry And you've got on record on Twitter as saying... Uh... Rocky's the greatest movie ever made. I, I don't know yeah. if I necessarily share the view, but you clearly getting for you to get to talk to Bill Conti is a special event for Jay Blake Fischera. Yes, yes, and he, he's not in the book. I interviewed him after, and I don't necessarily also, think he scored would... to death. He's not necessarily renowned for being some yeah, great, like, yeah. you know, chilling composer. He wouldn't necessarily fit within this within the book. But uh, I remember I was talking to him, I was asking him all these questions, and he's like, "Look, music is a language." And you don't understand that language. And that's why you find this interesting. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, well, I guess. you're a musician and you play guitar and you sing. I mean, it's like, I mean, while being a composer and being a performer are two different things, you're not some green neophyte. It's like, what's music? Tell me how it, how it functions in movies, blah, blah, blah. Like, you have a pretty good understanding. I mean, you perform around New York. Yeah, but when it comes about like the things like theory and composing or making music to um, enhance a narrative or help tell a story in the sense of the way music does, yeah, that's something I'm totally a novice at and don't really know anything about. The, the thing that came up in the first book and, came, and continues to come up in the second book is just how important music is to movies and how many functions it actually uh, has you know it's it's not like it's it's an interesting art form um one could argue that you know cinematography is is this way because film is such a, a collaborative art form that it does take a village <laughs> to, to to make a, a film and you could say like well a cinematographer is a photographer and he's servicing somebody else's vision but something there's something different about it for me with music where it's like these guys and girls these composers are exceptionally talented at creating music but yet it's an interesting form of music for them because they're not necessarily creating music for themselves they're creating music 
to service a director and a story and a narrative and what they necessarily want or what they necessarily feels the story needs. And they're, in essence, giving the movie its soul. And they're doing something that no one else in the crew can provide. Like a director can probably pick up the camera and keep shooting if the DP stubs his toe. But the composer, it's such a vital role and it can make or break your entire film. Yeah, it it does tend to be like the one place where a director, most directors do not, can't do themselves. Yeah, they might be able to hum something that they've heard that they like. Like Peter Jackson talks about with like Howard Shore, he kept saying, I need themes that are hummable. Like, like you know, the writers of Rohan need a hummable theme and the, the Fellowship, they need a, a hummable theme. But that's all he could really provide. Otherwise, it was up to Howard Shore to cook up. Everything else. <laughs> yes. So the creative role of a composer in the context of film is so important, so big, and yet so overlooked by most people. And that also became a big reason why I felt like this journey that I'm on to help tell the stories of these composers is important because they are people that, in my opinion deserve to have their stories told and deserve to be uh, celebrated for it. Yeah, I mean, you go on Twitter and you see people talking about films that they love. More often than not, they're talking about actors or directors. Sometimes they'll talk about DPs like Roger Deakins or they'll talk about certain screenwriters they like. But composers deserve to be rock stars. Like They deserve to be like Elvis on a stage with a crowd full of girls throwing their underwear at them. And they just are kind of invisible. I mean, people will mention Hans Zimmer or they'll mention Ennio, Ennio Morricone or they'll mention Bernard Herrmann but I feel like they definitely deserve much more of like I mean you talk about it quite a bit in this how there is a definitely like a rock star ingredient to how a lot of these guys come into it or at least in terms of their background but there was one moment that I thought kind of was dipping their get, getting into that terrain which I thought was very enjoyable is it Robert Cobert or Cobert how do you pronounce his last name Cobert Co when he met Ali McGraw and she started hugging and kissing him. She's like, oh, my God, like, you're making my performance so amazing. I was like, yes, thank you. Like, there, there you have an actress who's huge at the time acknowledging that a composer is, like, raising the whole experience for everybody, including her performance. Yeah, well, that's the one thing that I think people that aren't filmmakers or study filmmaking as a practical to become a filmmaker. I think one thing that a lot of, like, average viewers don't really – realize is that an actor's performance is like the actor themselves yet a huge part of it is just one piece of the puzzle of a great performance yeah they're a dab of color on a canvas you have the director who's like directing them you have the editor who's helping to create the, the proper rhythm because you could take a great performance that was live and then just massacre it in the editing yeah. room by changing the rhythms of it and changing all the timing and then you have the music, which one of its many functions, this is going to be something that I say a lot, which is that it has, it plays so many different roles within a film. But in this context, music tells, it tells the audience, gives the audience the feelings, tells the audience the things that the rest of the movie isn't giving them. So that can be, uh, you know, uh, making a connection with a, with a melody that you hear once in the movie and then it comes back, making that connection uh, in an emotional way for an audience. But in terms of a performance, it can kind of give you subtext in a way that just the performance itself can't give it. Yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood it, walks into a room and you hear a whistle like, oh, we're in spaghetti western territory. <laughs> 
Yeah, or, you know, when, you know, uh, if you're in an action scene and the music isn't playing the action, but playing like the emotional subtext of like why that action is happening, it's making a link in the viewer's mind. Uh, something that just the action itself, if it's a car chase and yet it's playing on the emotion of like that, you know, the person's chasing because the, because the person he's chasing has his daughter kidnapped. It's not playing like the action of like the cars moving fast. It's playing the emotion and the, and the motivation for it to happen. And that's something that just the visual can't do on its own. Yeah. And I feel like some, like there was a lot of really great scores can almost a, they can help you re-experience the movie. Like if you're talking about like the score to Conan or last of the Mohicans or something like that, like when you're listening, you can kind of remember the movie, but on the other hand, it will excite almost like new narratives. You can basically, it's like, this incredible epic storytelling where if you're listening to one of those scores, you like you, if you're running stairs, you feel like you can like, you're like He-Man all of a sudden you can run through walls. I mean, it can perform so many functions, but my favorite scores are always those ones where either the movie just comes back to you. Like when I, I used to listen to the Amadeus score quite a bit and I would yeah. just be seeing all these visions of the Milos Forman film and getting chills while listening to it or hearing a score for the first time, even if you haven't seen the movie yet and an entire narrative unfolds in your mind. Like those are always my, my favorite scores where it's almost like the score for the movie is like an album as opposed to individual tracks. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about uh, horror music and the, the horror music that I tend to gravitate towards uh, for listening purposes, are the things that are more, they're more melodic, you know, they feel more like music outside of the movie. And they're also things that, like you're saying, can kind of conjure up the movie in your mind. But horror has a lot of just like ambience and atmosphere. Oh, yeah. And though, you know, I can get into that as a listener, and there are many people that can get into that stuff as a listener, uh, you know, but some of the more abstract stuff works brilliantly in the context of the movie, but doesn't necessarily work on like a a pop music kind of level. <laughs> One of the things I liked about your book was uh, some of the composers bringing up the importance of silence as a composer when you're composing for horror. And I, I was it um. I think it was a Richard Band who kept saying that the first note of any piece of music is silence. Like technically, every piece of music starts with silence, and then the music begins. But as I was reading your book, I was thinking, all right, well, shit, what are the great horror movies that employ silence effectively as opposed to some overbearing score telling you how to feel? And as you were interviewing the great Koji Endo, who did a ton of scores for Takashi Miike, you made me look at Audition in a different light because Audition does employ a lot of silence. So I guess my question for you, what are the great silent horror scores, movies in essence that employ a lot of silence, and does the finale of Audition qualify? I think so. I mean, there's Audition, when I, when I, I didn't speak to him personally, but when I was typing out questions that I was going to send him because there was a language barrier, and Audition being, you know, a film that I love, uh, <laughs> even though it's such an odd film to use that word with. Yeah, it's uh, like, you could say, like, I'm impressed by it, or I'm in awe of it, or I'm traumatized by it, but like, I love it. You're like, oh, you love Audition? All right. <laughs> Let's talk about it was, that. <laughs> it, was, it was striking to me that there is very little music in that movie. Um, but it's kind of, it makes, mu when mute when they're, when the music is strategically placed and silence is used as part of the uh, sound design of a movie, it makes the music all that more important. Uh, with 
Charlie Clauser, for instance, who has scored all the Saw films. And, and I talked to this, I talked to him about it in the book. At some point in the series, there ends up being no silent, no silence in a traditional sense. Like there's always some piece of drone, like Saw, the Saw movies have its own version of silence as, as it goes on. There's never just like not any music whatsoever. It becomes more of like sound design of just like eerie atmosphere. But uh, that's an ex- that's an extreme example where there's just like really no moment of no- nothing on the mu- uh, on the score. Like on the as he says, it's he's like, it's really sound design, but it's on the music fader on the on the mixing board. Um, I think all scores, all successful horror films employ that you know, silence. It's, it's cause it's picking your moments. Yeah. Like, it's like in the, the exorcist, I think my, my one of the most chilling moments is total silence. And you're just seeing it's toward the end, like maybe it's father Karras coming back in and he sees Max von Sydow is kind of, kind of collapsed on the bed. But like, obviously the exorcist, when you think of the exorcist, you think of that great piano music early on or the crazy music you hear when the credits finally roll at the very end, but there's actually not a, not a ton of music throughout that flick. Yeah, well, that film is also interesting in that there's no, it's not a traditional score in a, in the, it's not a score in a traditional sense. It's like a collect, it's like a, it's a mixtape. <laughs> so a lot of needle drops, which is interesting. Kubrick did that a lot as well. Um, but it's not like one composer creating the soundtrack for that movie. But silence is, in, is important. I mean, it's important for all film, but uh, horror films specifically because one it creates it's you're helping to create mood but two you know there's the atmosphere but also like this idea suspense is such a big deal in horror where i mean you could argue and i talked about this with a lot of the composers where how comedy and and horror work because timing and uh, and you know the way a joke plays out is very similar to way the way suspense and a shock scare play, plays out yeah there's a structure and you don't want to overemphasize the structure to the point where you break whatever makes a joke funny or a scare scary. But a, gr- a great storyteller is aware of like the grammar being used to create those effects. Yeah. Well, you think of like any uh, great scare in a movie, it's usually, or a red herring in a, in a horror movie, you know, that's usually like you have the music, you either have silence building up to it and then the music hits in that moment or you have music building up to it and then the music cuts out and it kind of leaves the audience not knowing you know what's going to happen and then the big scare happens but it's it's the way music and silence are used throughout suspense and horror it's very strategic yeah like when uh, Mia Farrow first sees her baby in Rosemary's Baby it's total silence as she's going through the crib and suddenly <laughs> and you're like, oh my god! And you see that expression on her face, and it just it it rips your fucking heart out. But like that cue or that sound wouldn't be uh, have as much of an impact if you if necessarily if you had if you've been drowning kind of, in music the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. music. Even if it was even if it was subtle, it was the fact that there was nothing there, and then now there's sound that made the impact on you. All right, well, as you mentioned before, when you talked to Koji Indu, you had to talk via like basically written questions, have them answer, and then have them translate. And you did the same thing with Kenji Kawai. Um, I guess on one hand, it's a shame that you can't have like 
follow-up questions, but I did like the fact that you started to expand your scope to include these composers in other parts of the world because obviously Japanese horror over the last 20... I mean, you can make a case for Japanese horror going back to like fucking Ugetsu in the 50s, but it seems like late 90s, we were definitely like front and center for this Japanese horror renaissance, and obviously Takashi Miike was uh, a huge part of that, so... When did you know you wanted to start looking abroad to Far East Asia for the uh, the focus of this book? Because obviously, I, it seems like you and I discovered Miike right around the same time, and suddenly it was just like he's releasing seven movies a year, and you can barely keep up, and you're just getting like Dead or Alive and Visitor Q and Gozu and Three Extremes, and it's just all these movies, just like a tidal wave. Seems like the first book had less of an international flavor. So when did you know you wanted to pivot? Well, the first book uh, was mostly. American composers and the vast majority of those composers kinds of their, they started their careers in the seventies or eighties. But I, there are three Italian composers in the first book. And that was like, because Goblin was such a big influence on me and Fabio Fritzi was such a big influence on me. So in doing the second book, uh, kind of what I, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before about like, how I chose the the aspect, the fourth important aspect of my decision making uh, process, which I brought up was like, how, what can I do that the first book doesn't do? So then I started thinking of like, what aside from American composers, what's like a very important uh, region for horror that I didn't cover in the first book. And then, so yeah. Asia was the yeah, obvious yeah, choice. I mean, South Korea and Japan have just been on fire for decades. And knowing that it was going to be difficult and actually getting to those guys to get interviews was by hard, by far the hardest thing I ever did in terms of like detective work <laughs> for these books. Uh, but it became like, okay, looking at the Asian films that I like or the, the Asian films that be- had such a big impact on American cinema, which is what I'm accustomed to. And uh, so things like Takashi Miyake, who you know I'm a big fan of and whose work uh, made such an impact on me when it, when I first saw it in the late 90s or early 2000s and then like The Ring you know the Ringu and and those films and uh, Dark Waters and and so then those be- that became why I reached out to Koji Endo and Kenji Kawai because like those are you know uh, pivotal films not just for me but kind of for american cinema since then and i feel like horror sadly sometimes can be so derivative and we get a lot of remakes and that sort of thing but we're talking about some of the most paralyzing horror movies in recent memory i was at sundance when i saw three extremes and the the short box which koji endo scored i remember it felt like somebody had reached out and was like squeezing my heart during like when you're seeing through the box, just through the crack, seeing like the burned flesh around the eye looking out, I was like, I'm gonna have to like walk out of here and like catch my breath. I'm having like a fucking heart attack yeah. watching this goddamn movie. But one thing when you're in it, obviously it sucks not to be able to ask follow-up questions. Would you had asked a follow-up question when you ask him, um, do you find the films of your longtime collaborator, Takashi Miike, either to be unorthodox or extreme? He's like, nope, not at all. Like, <laughs> So if you've been sitting there face-to-face with him, what might have your follow-up question have been when he was so nonchalant about some of the most savage films of the last 20 years? Well, I mean, that would be a tough one to follow up because, I mean, clearly, I don't necessarily think that was the resp- like a personal response. I mean, I think in a way it was a cultural response. <laughs> and... Uh, 
it, look, it's very it's unfortunate in a way that you know these interviews ended up being pretty short, and like you said, I couldn't uh, do follow up questions because. The reason why the first book and the second book have the title Conversations with some of Har's greatest composers is because that's basically what those interviews became through the process. They really are more conversational. And uh, when you're interviewing somebody or in this situation, conversing with somebody like you don't necessarily as an interviewer. I yes, I have bullet points and I have questions and I have things. But the reason why I think the interviews that are featured in these books are interesting to other people or they or they read well to other people is because you know i i don't stick i don't stay to the plan i let the conversation go where it goes and that's why it has they have kind of a unique feel to them and in the situation with when i'm dealing with a language barrier and just typing out questions and hoping that they get answered uh, in the way that I'm that I would like them to. There's no way to just let a rhythm and a, and a rapport kind of take uh, the interview wherever it's going to go and have that specific interview have its own identity. With that said, part of what I was kind of implying a few minutes ago, which is like the detective work of finding out how to reach out to these guys, also made it quite clear that like English language audiences really have nothing to go on about these guys, you know, like I couldn't find really any interviews with them at all. So even though I knew that there was going to be an issue and it wasn't going to be the ideal interview that I wanted to get from those guys, I thought it was important to include them because at least it's something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also it's like, if you're going to talk about the best horror films of the last 25 years and you don't mention any films from Japan, well, then you're, you're doing it wrong. So it's just like it's absolutely essential to bring these folks into the conversation. But when you're – I mean th- these books are obviously called Score to Death, and I know you are a horror fanatic. How much discipline do you have to adhere to to keep the conversation more or less on horror? Because if you're talking to someone like uh, Kenji Kawai who did the score to Ringu – it would have been very tough not to, for me at least, as a fan, not to get completely derailed and go into Ghost in the Shell territory because Ghost in the Shell thinks one of the coolest scores of like you know that I've ever fucking heard. Yeah. And so, at, at what point did it say, "All right, well, I'm talking to this guy and he had this landmark score, but it's outside the focus." So, how how important is it to you to stay on brand? I, I mean, in the case of uh, Kenji Kawai, it was important because I knew my access to him was super limited and I needed this kind of stay on task. But I mean, you, you've having read the first book back when it came out and having read this book, I mean, you know that horror is really like half the story of the book and maybe less. It's really about them and their careers and their processes, which aren't specific to horror necessarily. And we do talk about like Craig Saffin is a perfect uh, example because Craig Saffin, he did like Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and uh, Fade to Black and he's done these great horror scores. But Craig Saffin to me growing up was last uh, Starfighter and Remo Williams. (laughs) So it was, so I mean, we talk at length about those scores even though they don't have anything to do with horror because I mean that... One, they're important to me, but two, they're important works to his uh, his catalog. And so, yes, I do, even when we don't talk about 
specific horror films, I do try to gear the process questions. You know, we talk about horror, yes. But I think having the book be called Scored to Death and having horror in the title is like a double-edged sword for these books. And I discovered that with the first book because, unfortunately, I think it excludes people that might be interested in the aspects of the book that aren't horror-related. You know, like it, it excludes maybe composers who aren't interested in horror film music. But that's the irony is that a lot of these composers you talk to, even though they've written great horror scores, they aren't particularly interested in horror either. Like, I mean, Robert, <laughs> yeah. uh, Cob- Robert Cobert, um, I, l- I love how he has this bit about how he doesn't, he never watched horror as a kid and he never like watches them now, but he's like, it was a J O B. Like he was such a, just a consummate craftsman and professional. He was more than capable of cranking out scores for TV shows and horror movies. <laughs> because it was a job and he's like his attitude was just don't turn down work do a great job move on so on and so forth and I just found you're sadly he has moved on he's pushed on to the composer heaven since your conversation with him but that was one of the most fun interviews in there where he just had so much personality and like so much piss and vinegar and I love like when you're looking for him like oh, I'm looking for this guy he used to be a composer he's like used to like I am a composer and like yeah. I, and he's I was 94 actually, years yeah, old was, and he hasn't scored anything since the 90s yeah but I was <laughs> cracking up reading that but I, I, I did find it very refreshing that he is capable of writing great horror even if he gives zero shits about the genre well you know this was a case in the first book as well as the second book where I find like the younger the more quote-unquote younger, the quote-unquote more contemporary composers seem to be more interested in horror, or or were horror fans, at least. Uh, Out of the first book, I think Christopher Young and probably John Carpenter were, like, the only two composers in the first book that were, like, fans of the genre before, you know, going into it. Uh, And then Chris Young, who wrote the afterword for for the second installment of the book... You know, he has a lot of mixed feelings about the way he, uh, he, he, the way he, his career has played out and whether he should have done as many horror films or done less horror films than he did. But for the most part, for most of them, Harry Manfredini, all the guys in the, in the first book, even, you know, Richard Band, guys from the second book, it was. I mean, it was a job. And whether they liked horror or not, it didn't really play into what, why they chose those projects. Do you, know, you agree g- that the horror genre limits the composer in terms of the emotions they're trying to convey? Because that was one thing that Kenji Kawai brought up is that he, you know, as a composer, you want to be able to do anything. But sometimes I feel like an artist 
having a few limitations, whether it's the constraints of the genre or time or money, whatever the case may be, a few creative constraints can be very helpful because if you've got nothing but options, it can kind of give you creative paralysis. But I feel like the horror genre in the hands of the great storytellers can go in so many different directions. I don't know if I 100% agree with the idea that the horror genre limits the composer. I, I don't necessarily agree with that either. And I think uh, the, uh, the opposite side of that argument or discussion is uh, Holly Amber Church, who's in the book, who says that one of the reasons why she loves the horror genre is because it does kind of include every other genre. Like you can't, there's drama, there's action, there's suspense. It's a lot of them. There's comedy. Or like, like folk it, music in the Wicker Man. That music's <laughs> chilling as hell, but it's not written to be scary. <laughs> yeah. But it, but, but that's the other side of it is yeah. that horror music can take on any form, you know, whereas a drama or a comedy or rom-com uh, or even a Western to a certain extent, there, there's a certain identity that goes along with those uh, genres that kind of, I think limits the kind of music you could do. And the, and the people that enjoy horror or even uh, in terms of the composers that enjoy horror or even the composers that are not necessarily fans, but they enjoy scoring the genre are because the options are limitless. Like you really can do anything. Like you can use any sound you want as long as it's effective and it works, but like you can't necessarily use like Charlie uh, Clouser, you know, uses, you know, subway sounds screeching into the subway station that he recorded back in the eighties, or he uses these like bowed metal instruments that make these like screeching or like low wails. You can't use that in a, in, you know, like a rom-com, but you can use that in a horror movie, but you can also use a piano and you can also use a violin or you can use whatever you want. And I think that creative freedom is not only what, attracts composers or at least is what compo what composers like about the, the scores but i think it's what makes a lot of those scores interesting to us as a listener and as horror fans and why horror fans are not only rabid and fanatical about the genre itself but we a lot of us ingest the scores with like with as much vigor <laughs> and a ravenous appetite as we do the films it's because one what you were uh, kind of saying earlier, which is like it, the, those, the music conjures up the film for us and it can recreate those feelings for us as a listener outside of the film. But two, horror scores are just interesting a lot of the time, at least the successful ones are. And it's part of that freedom of uh, not only the style of music, but the instruments used and the way they're implemented within the film. So I would I would say I would agree that in a way I don't agree with what uh, was it Koji Endo you said it said was, uh, that? Kenji Kawai who said that oh uh, Kenji yeah, Kawai fewer, I mean. fewer emotions to convey but what I also felt was interesting when you talk about how he's most influenced by Burt Bacharach I was like all right like uh, it's so funny when you like <laughs> somebody's written all this like creepy ass music or stuff for, like Ghost in the Shell like I would not think of Burt Bacharach when I, after watching Ghost in the Shell but you know everybody's influenced in different ways but one of my favorite composers you interviewed and this is Richard Band which couldn't ask for a better name for a composer than Richard Van, but he did like Reanimator and From Beyond and Castle Freak and all kinds of crazy stuff for Stuart Gordon, who sadly is no longer with us. But he brought up this really interesting concept or this predicament for a composer and for directors, and that is what happens when a director falls in love with the temp score 
and how do you wrestle with a director who's fallen in love with a temp score and you can't use the temp score and you gotta have to replace it with something after they've like maybe spent a year with that temp score and it's really challenging. I mean, one of my favorite interviews ever was uh, Brian De Palma was talking about when he first showed, I think it was Sisters, to Bernard Herman, and he had used all this Bernard Herman music as temp score, and Bernard Herman started screaming like, "Stop it! Stop it! I can't hear any of this!" Because his for his process, he needed to go into the movie totally cold and totally fresh. Yeah. But what were your takeaways about this? This is a problem on pretty much any movie where you're using temp scores. How does a composer go about? giving the film something fresh, original, unique, etc. when a director has completely fallen and like gotten emotionally attached to a, a temp score that will never be able to be used with the film. Well, the idea of a temp score has been um, an important discussion point of both books and, and the podcast. It's such a part of scoring films, especially today uh, with the advent of like, you know, being able to edit digitally and being able to pull whatever music you want off the internet. Um, so it, it this it's a conversation that happens in, I'd say, the majority of the interviews, in all the interviews between the two books as a whole. And it's interesting because when you listen to, most of them don't like it. Most of the composers don't care for it, especially the guys of like Richard Band's generation. Uh, but like, say you're a director and you have like a producer looming over your shoulder and wants to know like how things are going. If you can show them footage with a temp score, it just most people, even if they make movies, have a very hard time looking at dailies or rough cuts yeah. and not being horribly disappointed because it's a rough cut and like all the soul and all the finesse and all the nuance is gone. But if you can throw a little temp score on track, it can keep people off your back and makes the movie feel like it's in it's like in in better shape than it actually is. So I get why a lot of people use them. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of in a weird way a necessity. Uh, and I think a lot of the composers that I've spoken to understand that about it. And they, they, they hope to not, that they can watch it without. And if they're forced to watch it with, they, they want it to be only like the first viewing and then move on from it. Uh, Jay Chataway, who's in the first book, brought up an interesting point. You know, you're saying about like, it must be difficult for a composer to be, how, how can they be like original and all this? And he, he cites like, that's why in his estimation, and I think Richard talks about it quite a bit as well. It's like the reason why scores necessarily aren't, don't seem so original any these days is because everybody's temping with the same music. <laughs> and so we, we end up getting, even though there's new scores coming out, if they're all pulling from the same temp scores, uh, all the new scores end up having a similar identity in a, in a strange way. Uh, it, yeah, it's a difficult and some of them hate it. But then what I found really fascinating is like disaster piece, for instance, who yeah. had never scored a movie. Yeah. And also like using like old hardware for scoring video games to compose original music. And he actually comes from the world of video. Games. I actually played Fez. I saw it in this documentary on Netflix about the making of like indie games. And Fez was one of the ones. So God, like, oh, that looks fucking fascinating. So I tried it. And then as I was reading your book, I was like, Oh my God, like that makes total sense that the composer of it follows was comes from the world of gaming. Yeah, well, but his was like I didn't know. He's like I didn't know how to score a movie, so he's like I found he found the the, the temp score to be a really important guide to kind of, and they did use things from Fez to temp score the movie. But uh, 
he actually really likes the temp score because he fi- he finds it to be really helpful. Gives him because, a roadmap, yeah. Yeah, it gives him a, a way to go and, and to understand like where the composer, uh, where the directors are coming from with the emotion and stuff. I find that uh, the vast majority of composers that I speak to, they prefer to be directed like a director would direct an actor. Gotcha. You know, there's this thing about like directing actors and maybe if you haven't studied film making specifically, but like you're never supposed to give an actor a line reading. You're not supposed to tell them how to say it. You're supposed to, you know, give them the information so that they can find or give them whatever they need to, to give it the best performance. Cause I feel like every actor's different. It's like, how do you get the best performance out of an athlete? Well, it depends upon the athlete. Same with actors. Some actors need a line tamer and some actors need freedom and a, a director has to be an, ep- an expert in psychology and figure out how do I go about getting the best performance possible out of this crazy individual. And some actors don't mind a line reading to be like, I want you to say it like this. And then I say the line. Uh, some people don't like that, but uh, for the most part, as you, as you come up and you're trying to be, learn how to be a director, you're told never to do that to a, to an actor. And so I find that the composers tend to like that too. Like they want the information, they want the background. They want to know what's the, what's the goal of this scene. What are the emotional aspects of this scene that we want to play up, but they don't necessarily want to say like, here's a, here's the, here's a piece of music. I want you to do this. Yeah. Give me the exact music, but a different piece of music. It's like, well then that doesn't make any sense. But along those lines, I started howling when you brought up, when you were interviewing Richard Band and you brought up, let's just say, the similarities between the score by Bernard, Bernard Herman to Psycho and his score to Reanimator.
which whenever I watch Reanimator, which I think is one of the, by far, one of the most entertaining movies made from the 1980s, irrespective of genre. It's just a fucking wild ride, and it gets better each time I see it. But when that movie starts, you're like, what, wait, what? What the fuck? Like this? It's, it's like the psycho score, but it's not the psycho score. It's like it's just different enough. So like when you decided to broach this topic with him, like were you worried at all that he might be possibly like offended? But it seems obviously people have brought up these similarities to him in the past. But I, I guess what is your general philosophy about asking not tough questions, but awkward questions that you know a lot of readers are going to want to have asked? Yeah, I uh, I. In, in Richard's particular case, I, I knew that he had spoken about it before, so I didn't feel nervous about broaching that topic with him. But in general, I feel like it's like my duty as uh, uh, an interviewer, and I, I use the word journalist loosely in, in this context, but like I, I want to do what's best for the book, and I want to do, as a horror fan and a film music fan, the number one goal of all these interviews has been to create something that I want to know the information to. And I assume that if if I'm pleased with that information or I get the information that I want, that other people also want to know that information. So it doesn't really... Yes, sometimes there are interviews where I get nervous, and it's mostly because of the composer themselves, like John Carpenter. But... Uh, I, it doesn't phase me. Like, I, I don't withhold questions because I think they may be tough. And I think that's why uh, the interviewers, the interviewees, the composers end up enjoying the experience and why I've made so many great friends from doing these interviews. Uh, like, people talk about... Uh, the, the most feedback I get from the first book is the last interview, which is Chris Young. And they say, like, it's so raw, or it's this, and that's that. And it's because, you know, like, I pushed Chris on questions, and he'd say something, and I would push him and be like, well, is that, you know, like, but I don't see it that way. And then it became more of a discussion, and, and, I, and I forced him on, like, these things of, like, feeling uh, like he's been typecast. And so people respond as, as readers to that interview as saying like wow like this is like the people have called it raw which i never would <laughs> i would raw never dogs, just, baby. I, I would never describe that interview that way but i think that's what people as readers respond to and i think it's why chris has told me that he thinks it's the best interview he's ever done and why chris and i are now great friends and we text and i say every time i'm in california we hang out and it's i think they respect I think one, they're pleased that they they get to forge new territory in an interview, and I think two, they respect me as as a as a as an interviewer, but also as a, just like a person who's interested uh, for not just asking the same questions over and over again, and not being afraid to push them a little bit and say like, well, look, you know, you said this, but. This is an example where you don't do this. Yeah, or good like, journalism has a slightly adversarial relationship and it's not meant in a vindictive or evil kind of gotcha way, but you're trying to just get at the heart of the matter and being challenged a little bit allows you to go into fresh terrain. If otherwise it's just you're just working in PR. You're just, you know, you're doing publicity, yeah. which has a role. Some people just want some great fan service and just want to, you know, a bunch of high fives and good feelings of well-being. But if you want these books to last and to be a resource for people interested in the subject moving forward, they have to do more than to say, 
yo, man, it's like, like, like Chris Farley's, we used to interview people on the SNL, like, you know, like when you wrote that song, like, that was awesome. Like, you, you, you have to go a little, a little deeper than yeah. that. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's, you know, I, I, people have asked me who are going to do interviews or interviews with composers on social media or for their own podcast. They post questions or some of them, and I'm flattered, have asked me, you know, how I feel about it or things that I do. And I, and I say, you know, uh, and I think it's a given, but I, 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 I always say like the first thing, just like ask the questions you're interested in the answer to, you know, because like, like I think, and in the first book, I think I did more of, I did more of like the asking of the typical question for them, but I tried, but when I did that of like the questions they've answered a million times, I, I maybe did that. And then I tried to go deeper, like with Harry Manfredini talking about like the kick, 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 he's talked a million times about how he did it and you know, what inspired it in terms of in the context of the film. But in the first book I say, but like, okay, like I understand that, but like, what was it that made you think to use like consonants of a vocal sound? And then he goes into this like Penderecki, you know, like explanation of like, I was listening to this piece of music, stuff I've never heard him talk about. So if you're going to ask them the questions, because like in some ways I think of the interviews, especially in the first book as being like, I want the greatest hits. I want like all the answers they've given in every, I want it to be the definitive interview, yeah, which like, means like I want the, them the first and last stop uh, on this conversation. I want them to cover everything they've covered in every other interview, but then I want all this other material. So if you're going to, if you feel like you need to rehash material, you either have to rehash that material in a new way or be ready to push them to go deeper into it and find things about it that are completely new. And that's always been, kind of the way I've approached all these interviews and uh, and you know if you feel like you need to go that way push but ultimately you know like I said you, I have I always feel like if I'm if this is the information I want to know then I have to assume that other people's want other people yeah, it's like know making movies too. that you want to see if you make a movie that you want to see there's a good chance somebody else out there wants to see it too but I guess who are the luminaries? Who are the legends that are still out there that you have not spoken to? Where you're like, God damn, like I would cut off my pinky to have an hour in front of this composer. Yeah, it's interesting that this is, a, uh, in one form or another, uh, this kind of question is implied. And I always have to preface it with like, nobody in these books is like second tier to me. Like there was no one like, I couldn't get so-and-so, so I asked this person instead. It would always be if there's other people I want to talk I to. Couldn't get Bernard like, Herman because he's dead, so I got <laughs> Richard Band instead. <laughs> no, but like there's people like who haven't you interviewed yet that you want to interview? Who who would you like to have included in this book? Um, yeah, we just lost Ennio Morricone, so sadly he is unavailable. Yes, and uh, obviously I would have loved to talk to him. And I, for both books, I've reached out to John Williams. And his people are also always very kind. And I always try to sweeten the pot. Be like, look, I'm not going to talk to him about Star Wars and Indiana Jones. <laughs> like, I want to talk about Jaws. And I want to talk about Dracula. And I want to talk about these other things, the Fury or whatever. Uh, but uh, people that I, I say I, I've been, people that I approached this time around that did not make it into the book, because of whatever reason, whether it's scheduling or just disinterest. Uh, of course, Howard Shore, 
I would love to interview because Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors of yeah. all time. I mean that that and also they I don't know how many movies they made together, but they basically worked together for decades and creating some of my favorite horror movies that I've ever seen. Yeah. So uh unfortunately he was working on another project and he didn't feel like he could work on my project as well. So I reached out to him. Um Pino Dinogio just was not interested in being interviewed. Uh Angelo Bettelamente nice. was also not interested in, in uh, contributing. Um, there are just uh, guys that maybe I didn't reach out. Oh, Graham Revel, not not Graham Revel. Graham Revel is a guy that I would love to talk to, but I couldn't find how to reach out to him because he kind of fell off the face of the earth. Uh, but uh, Marco Beltrami, who did like Scream, and he's done so many. He's worked with uh, Del Toro, uh, Guillermo del Toro. He's done so many things. His was just a scheduling issue, and uh, we basically tried to schedule something for a year, and then finally I had to say like, "Look, I, the, the book is due." <laughs> yeah, um, we've run out of runway. We, the plane has uh, to take off. Brian Tyler is someone I would love to interview that I, I didn't necessarily reach out to, but I would if I did another one, he would be on the top of the list. You know, it's it, like I said, the, first, the the lineup of the book goes. There's a lot of factors that go into who I choose, and uh, one of which is the way the interviews will play off each other and the diversity of each person. And uh, so there, there's a lot of amazing composers those are just a handful of people that i would love to interview well final question on one hand it sounds like a lot of these composers have negative feelings about the the lack of creativity with some horror scores out there however as you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation we're experiencing this true renaissance in terms of people's obsession with great horror soundtracks and it seems like in the time since I first got into the movies in the late 90s to now, our access to obscure genre films, particularly like from Italy and from Japan, has just exploded exponentially. And so I feel like I have a hard time being pessimistic about the state of people's love and affection for horror music when there's more of it available than ever before. Like if we'd if you'd had this conversation back in the 90s, I feel like we'd talk about like Jaws, Psycho, and like a, a handful of movies. But now there's like literally like hundreds if not thousands of different contenders to be discussed so what are your what is the general health of the horror score space in the movie biz both in terms of fandom and what they're consuming and the work that we're being exposed to i mean i think it's healthy i think it's it's i'm optimistic about it i mean just in the two and a half to three years it took me to do the first book like the landscape of popularity and uh, uh, and desire to own and reissue scores kind of exploded over that time. So the the first book came out like right on like the peak of this wave of like things like uh, record labels like uh, Waxwork Records and Mondo and, and Death Waltz and uh, Carpenter was on tour. That, I mean, Carpenter only could tour because of this, the crest of this wave hitting of like popularity in this kind of, uh, of music. And it's only, it's, you know, maybe it's died down a little bit, uh, because of COVID because only because of like, you know, people don't have the money they can spend on yeah, it. The or, live, and also just the live music component is gone. It's like in the fight industry, it's very healthy in terms of people watching it, but there's no gate. Yeah. And there's, there's no live, there's no live venues for them to do it at. There's, uh, Think maybe distribution has slowed down because of things going on, you know, like record 
manufacturing companies had to slow down production. You know, like things have slowed down. But in terms of like creativity, it's, I mean, it's, Look, horror itself is kind of never going to die. So you're, you're, they're always going to need music for it. And, you know, we went It's through... always inexpensive. It's always commercially viable. And ever since cave people were sitting around the fire telling each other stories, people have liked being freaked out. <laughs> yeah. We've gone through this bit of like a nostalgia thing in recent years. So a lot of things that have kind of uh, have been reminiscent in terms of... Uh, Sounds, not necessarily the music itself, but like you know, like things like Stranger Things, uh, some of the stuff who that Rob Robin Couder, who's known as Rob, who I interviewed for the book, a French composer who deals in a lot of electronic music. Even it follows, which I think I, I mean, Disaster Piece and I talk about in the book, which is like I find it interesting that I think it that's his score for that has been labeled like an '80s score, but when you actually listen to it, it's not. Like it doesn't no, it sound. Doesn't, it doesn't feel retro at all. Like you can, I think some movies are so retro to the point where they become creatively bankrupt. And I don't yeah. get that impression at all from Disaster Piece. I, I love his style, and yeah. especially with like Under the Silver Lake. I think, well, that yeah, that score is is amazing. It, it totally different than uh, than uh, it follows. Yeah, I think this the nostalgia thing is. I think that's the the biggest speed bump. And I think that'll go away because it, the, yeah, it we'll gives move the genre rigor mortis when you're stuck on one decade. It's like, all right, we get it. The 80s were cool. Let's talk about <laughs> something else. <laughs> and it's just like more just like it just keeps on more things of that nature keep coming out. And I love it. And, you know, like I grew up with those sounds. I They give me the warms in the heart. <laughs> you know, I get all warm in my tummy when I hear those keyboard sounds. But at some point more 90s nostalgia is going to come in and then we'll start to get more orchestral stuff but then the beautiful thing about horror in general is that it's always a we'll reflection getting some more music like in the mouth of madness and in the mouth of madness <laughs> that score in particular has a special value to you absolutely and uh it's just like you know those kinds of things will come in waves but the beautiful thing about the horror genre is that like any art but it's a reflection of the time and so it's always going to be moving forward and reflecting what's happening and it's always going to need music and there are some amazing composers that you know some of which are in this book and some of which I interviewed in the first book like Joseph Bashara and Nathan Barr who Nathan's doing all kinds of stuff not in the horror genre but he's an amazing composer uh to you know Holly Amber Church who's grinding away at some of the independent horror of today and she's only one film away from being, you know, like one of the main people <laughs> scoring horror in in uh, studio films. She just needs that. She's working towards it. She's fantastic. Disaster Piece is creating interesting things. Michael Abels, who's also in the book, who did Get Out and Us, he's coming from it. He's coming to contemporary horror uh, from a totally different place because uh, these are the first feature films he's uh, scored. But he's been a working composer for decades leading up to it. And so everybody's going to bring their own kind of uh, perspective to it as well. You know, and the filmmakers do obviously, and it's just, it's, it's just going to get, it's just going to get better. I mean, we do have a tendency and a lot of the composers talking about it where it's like for the most, you know, some people think that film music today is less melodic. There's less uh, memorable themes. And I would argue that, 
you know, we don't find them memorable because we're not like 11 when we're seeing them. Yeah, 20 you know? years from now, when that 11-year-old is in their early 30s, they will have forgotten the 99 out of 100 forgettable, interchangeable scores. I'm like, oh, my God. But that one score for this changed my life. And so that's just as inevitable as the turning of the earth. Like people who were alive in the 80s who had been around like in the 30s and 40s, like, oh, my God, well, we used to create such great scores for like Universal Monsters, and now the scores suck. Like that's just <laughs> a sign of the aging process. Everybody always thinks that the music from the current time sucks if they're old, and they think it's great if they're young. And then they get nostalgic about it a few de decades later. But for whatever reason, people always lose sight of that same pattern that plays itself out over and over again. Yeah. I would say well, for horror films specifically, I think – the stuff's going to be great because from my experience, the people that are our age or younger uh, that are composing for horror, a lot of them are way more passionate about the genre than, you know, the guys that were doing it in the 70s and 80s or even the 90s. And maybe that was a benefit to them. And there are more documentaries on the subject. I mean, you and I are both like we were like in that conversation about In Search of Darkness Part 2. I mean, it's... There it seems to be more material being created about horror than ever before, and the natural byproduct of that is going to be a ton of really passionate, well-educated, well-versed fans who know the genre backwards and forwards. Yeah, so it's just there's just going to be some great stuff, as there always is. Every decade has its great scores, and maybe uh, you know, unfortunately, budgets uh, get smaller for scores, but technology becomes a bigger factor and that can be one a blessing and that like you know they can score with any sound they want you know they're not limited but then also, in a way that limits them in no a weird budget way. for his music when he got started in his movies like well i have no budget for the music so i'll just spend three days and crank out a memorable score and that and that's what's going in there whether it's you know uh like assault on precinct 13 or halloween or whatever so yeah. yeah it's it's great if you can have an orchestra and every once in a while it's great to have that big bold sound that just blasts you out of your chair but sometimes all you need is a guy in a synthesizer and you're, yeah. and you're off to the races well, that's the one thing i do worry about is that um only like the hundred, two hundred million dollar movies will be able to afford orchestras at some point, yeah. and I, I, I do fear that that's, and and you can simulate an orchestra with in the, in the computer like brilliantly, but there is it's not the and same. Yeah. And Craig Saffin even says, like, look, you don't need one anymore. And Richard Band is an example of a guy who does it brilliantly with and without, uh, live players. But I do hope that. Like the live orchestral score does not completely disappear for for horror in the future. That that would be my one worry, because there is something to it. And thankfully, guys like Joseph Pichara who get to do like the Insidious and the Conjuring movies. Yeah, and the Conjuring on, movies are big budget movies. Yeah, I mean they're still like independent movies, but they're distributed through major studios. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I just, a fucking I don't... franchise at this point with like spinoffs and sequels and all <laughs> kinds of shit. I mean, it's like the Avengers of fucking horror, horror franchises. I don't want that to disappear, and that would be my only big fear. But other than that, I think the cre the from the composer and the creative standpoint, horror music and horror movies in general are in a very good place. Excellent. Where can people find the book? Where can people find you? Where can people find the podcast? It's plug time, bitches. So promote anything <laughs> and everything related to Jay Blake Fisher. And obviously, I'll include a link in the show notes below where people can buy the book on Amazon. Well, we've been having issues with Amazon, so hopefully by the time this uh, this posts, that will all be cleared up. So it will definitely be on Amazon. If it's not yet, it will be very soon. Uh, 
You can also order it directly from my publisher, Silman James Press, at silmanjamespress.com. I don't have a ton of copies, but if you're interested in a autographed copy, you can either contact me on social media at scored to death or visit scoredtodeath.com. And there's a way to kind of order there. Uh, scored to death, the podcast. I'm kind of taking a break right now from a lot of things. And I'd like to continue scored to death, the podcast. Uh, we have, I do have some newer interviews up there now. I'm not sure how much, how often I'm going to be putting stuff there, but that will continue. And, uh, as of right now, when we're recording this Saturday night movie sleepovers is on hiatus and uh, we will see our first hiatus ever. And we will see if, when that comes back, we're not sure yet. Uh, just a lot of things going on there. Well, I can uh, always put Dion by uh, your uh, partner in crime back to work on more short films (laughs) as Jimmy the rake. So we'll find a way to keep him busy no matter what. I don't know if he told you, but Jimmy the Rake was invented in a thing that we did. Nice. I did, he didn't tell me that. No, he just <laughs> that he, character. He threw out a couple of names for the character, and that was the one that we grabbed. Jimmy the Rake was invented for a short film that we did for fun at Sudi Purchase that starred him, myself, and Chris Funderburg. Nice. I had and no <laughs> idea that there was like inter, inter like uh, you know, kind of, kind of like textuality between these different projects. So Jimmy the Rake has made a new appearance, and and will hopefully live on. But uh, those are the big things. I've just did a Fangoria uh, panel, which you know you should be able to find on that. That was for Facebook Live. That might still be on Facebook, and I know they'll probably release that separately. It was a composer panel with five of the composers from the book, including we should mention Brad Fidel's in the book, who did Terminator, <laughs> Terminator Two. Uh, some great composers. And you could argue and, that Terminator is one of the great horror scores, even though people think it's sci-fi, but it's like, well, shit, it is sci-fi, but it's a pretty goddamn good horror movie, too. Yeah, it's absolutely great. The book is, I'm very proud of the book. Uh, uh, the lineup is fantastic. We've talked about uh, Rob, uh, Bob Cobert, Robert Cobert, a bunch in this interview, and I'm, and I'm pleased about it. I interviewed him at age 94. And sadly, he passed away about a year later. Oh, but he just got electricity coming out of him. That that interview is delightful. I'm debating uh, his the audio of that interview is oh, like the make funniest. An, make, thing. make an episode out of it without a doubt. <laughs> the make an funniest thing ever. Yeah. You can it just tell. Too. I mean, like and like just little things when he's talking a mile a minute, like river of information. But then you'll ask him, like, oh, well, that's political. I can't talk about that. It's like, whoa, like you're 94 and you're still like keeping like Hollywood secrets. Like, what? Like, yeah. I want to know more about that. And then he zigs. But yeah, anyway, he he was. Yeah. By far my and favorite he, interview in the book. And he, he's best known for, he did all the music for Dark Shadows, the television series, and Burnt Offerings, and all these great Dan Curtis projects in the 70s and 80s. So it's a, it's a fantastic lineup of talent. I'm very honored to be able to tell his story as well as everybody else's in the book's story. I, I take it uh, very seriously, uh, and, and I don't take it for granted that these guys are willing to share their stories with me. And I, and I think it's a very important job, and I, and I don't take it for granted that I get to be the person to help relay these stories to, to fans and, and hopefully, you know, aspiring our, uh, composers. Cause I think there's a lot of important information that they can learn from because this is a experience from like hardworking composers who have grinded it out throughout the decades. Yeah, and this is how the sausage just, gets made. <laughs> there's so much experience that people can learn from, from it. And there's, they're great storytellers, not just musically, but also, uh, in the spoken word that uh, had been transcribed in the book. So I, I hope everybody who, if you love film music, obviously check it out. But if you love the process of filmmaking and horror movies, uh, I think, I think you will, even if you're not interested in the music, I think you will find the interviews interesting. 
Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for coming on Wrong Real and pitching the book. And definitely everybody out there, just for the sake of supporting our Wrong Real kind of inner circle network of contacts, definitely if you want to buy a late Christmas gift for anybody that you feel like you've, you've like they gave you a present and you forgot to get them one, get them scored <laughs> to death. Part two. But we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out Jay Blake Vachera on social media and all of his various projects. And if you want to leave us a rating review, that's awesome. And if you want to check out some short form content, check out my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But thanks so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>